I'm Kate Daniels. Dr. Sanam Hafiz is a neuropsychologist in New York City. She's a faculty member of Columbia University. She's conducted research in the area of what makes a mentally fit police officer. And she has worked with the New York City Police Department. She has the credentials to help us get a better understanding of the huge issues we are seeing with police departments across this country. So let's get to this conversation. Dr. Sanam Hafiz, good morning. Thank you for joining us once again. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be back. You have brought us really a a voice of information, of calm, of helping us to navigate. And and that's what I'm looking forward to this morning uh, as we look at another really very tough uh, situation, a very uh, unsettling situation in our country, and that is with all of the uh, issues that have gone around along with uh, the violence that we've seen um, through the media, for sure, of what's gone on in our society with the protests, with the reaction of the police officers, the demand for dismantling police officers. Uh, what You have done a lot of research in this area about yeah. mental fil- fitness for police officers. What can you tell us about that? So um, I just want to give a little bit of the background of what I do in terms of police assessments. Um, For almost 15 years now, um, um, I've been working very closely with members of the police department in New York City, NYPD, the police officers that work for the MTA, which is the Mass Transit, the Metropolitan Transit Authority, uh, Port Authority, the Bridge and Tunnel uh, of New Jersey, Port Authority, and so there are other, you know, police forces, especially in a city as, as great as New York, uh, where they're not just with the police force, they're police officers in, in, a, in a lot of different agencies and um, corrections officers as well. And what I do is um, a fair amount of psychological testing for them, which basically means that there are two types of psychological assessments that come through my, um, my office. One is when a candidate applies and fails the psychological they have a right to appeal that psychological. And in that appealing process, they'll seek out an independent psychologist such as myself who will sort of replicate the testing um, using different standardized measures and give the department an, you know, an honest, subjective rating uh, of where, you know, where they think um, the police officer candidate is, if, if he, he or she should pass, um, if, you know, whatever the, the concerns are. But it's really usually a pass or fail. The other thing that comes through my office are police officers on the job who have had an incident, meaning something occurred on the job that was questionable or concerning, and they were either put on leave or suspension, and their firearm was taken away, and they can't return until they get a clearance. So I've done, I would say, hundreds of these at this point in some fashion or form over the course of my career. Um, and I can tell you that it's a critical component in assessing uh, or job selection for police officers. So it is a critical component when it's a pass-fail. Those who would then fail certainly would not be hired onto the force. So generally, those who fail, it's actually one way for police um, departments to weed out a lot of candidates, you know, especially with NYPD. NYPD gets a tremendous number of applications a year. And um, they might pass the fitness test. They might pass the, the written test. 
And the psychological fitness is usually where a lot most people get stuck. I think, uh, a, I don't know, like an 80% of people don't get past the psychological. 80%? It's a, it's a pretty high number, yeah. It a is. A significant amount of people don't make the psychological. But it's also, you know, it's, it's also a way to read, you know, you can't hire all the people who apply, right? There's got to be a selection criteria. So there's a very high number of people who don't pass. And it's a, you know, you, you look at um, the the candidates with a very keen eye between the the written component of the psychological, the oral interview, you know, you basically um, get to see everything from parking tickets to open container summons to, you know, um, a relationship gone wrong. I mean, they have to divulge all that information to you because if they don't and you find out, I mean, that strike is, you know, a, a definite no. You can't get over that. Right. So when we see, now you're talking about New York, I, we can't say that that's the way that it would necessarily be across the country. But if we look yeah. at what the violence that occurred in uh, in Minneapolis, uh, the excessive force that resulted in George Floyd's death, uh, in that case, and they say that there were sort of indications of this one officer already having such issues would wouldn't that have been a red flag to you know go through psychological assessment and and being just kicked off the force essentially well i have a lot to say about this so let me let me start by telling you a very eerie story about the minneapolis police department um a couple of years ago i was putting in uh, a proposal for an assessment with one of the new york city agencies for police uh for police assessments and in doing that, I came across an article about the Minneapolis Police Department. Then in 2012, the Minneapolis Police Department did away with four out of five psychological tests that they should have been giving police officers, four out of five, leaving one random test behind. I don't know if it was budgetary. I don't know whose decision it was. In fact, no one at the higher up actually, you know, took um, – took the responsibility for what went wrong there. And we ended up having um, a couple of incidents. One that led to, and the, the man was, the officer was just convicted last year of killing a, um, a woman who was just standing outside her car. He just was completely fearful and um, was very, he was new on the job. I mean, clearly had not been through rigorous psychological testing in the hiring process. And he unfortunately killed um, a woman who was actually an Australian who was living in, in Minneapolis at the time with a fiance. So it was, you know, and, and so in, in writing this proposal, I talked about the, the need, the intense need for appropriate psychological testing. You bring up a good point that New York City is not the standard for across the country because New York City has a tremendous population, a tremendous police force, a, a big size, you know, budget that actually can allow for some of this. And even then, I feel like psychological testing is not what it should be, even in New York City, for sure. Because when I do the psychological testing, I am digging so much deeper because as a private practitioner, I can, and I'm doing more psychological tests. But, you know, the national standards across the country, they vary. They vary by city. They vary by town. You know, in New York City, if you go out to Long Island, Nassau County, Suffolk County, every town has their own police department. And they get to govern that police department. And that's true for across the United States. And so when you don't have a uniform 
criteria to hire, a selection criteria to do psychological testing, you're going to end up with cases like this. And the Minneapolis Police Department, you know, that was just eerie because I cited then cutting out these psychological tests back in 2012 in a proposal I wrote in 2018. And here we are, it became the central place for, you know, this huge movement that started because of this awful uh, murder of this poor man on the streets. But when you look at Derek Chauvin's record, this wasn't his first. He had 12 or 13 other similar incidents and he had gone unchecked. No one had thought, hey, maybe this guy needs to take a leave. Maybe we need to assess him again. Exactly. But if if they were had already disbanded with four out of five of their tests, there doesn't seem to be in that situation any way of monitoring that. It was, you know, just giving a pass each time. Got away each time, which probably just emboldened him. Um, You know, and I don't know who these supervisors were who, you know, you don't need to be a psychologist to see something's wrong there. So it seems to me, and heavens, it's such a huge issue, you know, with people calling for the uh, disbanding of police departments, and there needs to be change for certain. It seems that having these psychological tests in place to be able to determine who is really able to do this kind of work and stand up to the pressure would be a, a critical part of it. Uh, you know, I, that's the thing that keeps, I, I keep thinking about this, that keeps coming up for me, um, you know, from a pragmatic standpoint, that, you know, the anger, I think, will take a very, very long time to subside in this country, if ever. You know, there's there's just um, such a history of unfair practices and such brutality, um, even after, you know, under the law, we're supposedly all equal, but clearly not. But I think, you know, we have to start thinking about how to be part of the solution. And part of the solution, um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily disbanding the police departments. What it has to be is a very strict system of checks and balances, a very strict selection criteria. Look, let me tell you something. If you're a high school student in Seattle and you're a high school student in New York City or you're a high school student in, you know, um, some somewhere in the Midwest, right? You, your chances of getting into a four-year school or a two-year school are to some degree the same because the criteria is somewhat uniform. You have to have a high school degree. You need to have the appropriate number of credits. You need to have, let's say, a B average. You need to have taken the SATs. You know, it's ideal for a better school that you have some, you know, volunteering experience, right? There's uniformity. So you know that all college students have met some minimum basic criteria and then some. <laughs> These right. are just college students. Why don't we have that for police officers, people who put on a uniform and carry a gun with a license to kill if need be, right? So right. it baffles me why every city and, and town is allowed to govern their police departments as they see fit. You know, with management changing, with uh, policies changing, and there's no one to hold them accountable. And so I think one of the, you know, if I had my say, I would say there needs to be a, a federally funded police training program across the country, psychological testing, not only at hiring 
but ongoing screening, especially if there's been an incident or maybe a, what we call a triennial, which is, you know, an evaluation every three years. Yes, it would cost the, the police department a lot of money, but it still wouldn't be worth one life lost to police brutality. Indeed. And when you look in this situation about that upfront cost, when you look out against not just one life, but there have been so many lives needlessly lost, tragically lost. So to put in that kind of of uh, framework for people to be able to be uh, providing that kind of security that we need, but it's beyond security at this point when we find that there are murders. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think that you know, it's it's not it's, this is not going to be overnight. I think people have lost their faith in their police departments, which is sad to say the least. Um, but I think if people can see that there is actual, it's, it's they're not just promises. They're not just you know people um, who have never thought of this. You know, we had the NFL commissioner who came out and said. You know, we apologize. We should have taken the kneeling more seriously or we should have treated that differently. You know, everyone's sort of jumping on the bandwagon because it's the right thing to do now. Right. If you're not, you're going to be on the wrong side of history on this in so many different ways. And there are, you know, financial implications. That's not the that's not the reason to be doing this. You have to put your money where your mouth is and putting your money where your mouth is is saying, look, let's be honest. We need the police to police. We need them. To keep the city safe, we need them. When you know someone's breaking into your home, you're not going to call your neighbor; you call your police department. But at the same time, there needs to be a commitment to true change. Like you know, when it comes to talking about budgeting, when it comes to talking about training, when it comes to talking about psychological assessments, you know, psychologists are a, a rare breed in some uh, parts of this country. But it's not undoable. It is not undoable to bring someone on who knows what they're talking about. There is research that looks at, empirically speaking, what makes for a good police officer. And I'll tell you the traits that make for a good police officer. Intelligence, at least average intelligence, right? But most police departments, including New York City, does not do IQ testing, even a brief screener. There's no testing for ADHD-type traits, so inattention, impulsivity, hyperactivity, you know, the kind of People that become trigger happy are also people who are somewhat jumpy and, and antsy and, and have impulse control issues. Right? They're also often police officers are people who like to be on the go, who like to be moving. You know, that's part of the personality type. And so, what comes with that personality type is some also sometimes a sense of agitation or restlessness. The other thing is that being a police officer ha- carries a significant amount of burnout as it is. But it doesn't take away from the fact that these police officers still are human beings with the lives of their own. They have families and, you know, spouses and partners and children and, uh, you know, parents and whatnot. And so how well they respond, respond to that stress is a huge part of how well they can function on the job. Because it's critical that that stress does not mitigate the way they, they actually perform their job. And, you know, for instance, Derek Chauvin, I, I read, um, and I, I think this was a credible source, that his wife had filed for separation the day before. You know, that is a stressful situation no matter what. And so how do we know for the police officer with a long list of 
brutality, how do we know that this wasn't just a an angry man who felt, you know, rejected and, and maybe despairing over his wife leaving him, taking it out on an, on a person that he decided to tackle and, and put his knee on his neck. So this is where we can we might see diverging just slightly from that and and it applies to where if there were uh, in place that opportunity to seek help, that it was really not looked at as something of a stigma to seek professional psychological help, maybe that would have been part of a solution that this this person, someone in a similar situation would reach out for help. But we seem to not have that. I mean, it's not regarded as the right proper thing to do, I mean, right? Look, I don't, A, I don't think it's readily available in most police departments. B, I think the culture of police departments is generally speaking, even though they're women on the force, is generally very male and, and possibly chauvinistic or at least that brotherhood. And yes, seeking out mental health help can sometimes be seen as a form of weakness. But if your employer is just like we do drug testing, if your employer insists that you report any changes in your personal life or you report any kind of stressors, even if it's you're just sleeping poorly now, right? Let's talk about sleep. How long do you think someone can handle a gun or a stressful situation if they're having sleep issues? Most people don't think about doing that. So I think if your employer sort of built in a protective factor where not only is mental health um, counseling and services, are they, they're available to you, but you're doing a better job at selecting these candidates from the get-go by doing thorough, intensive psychological testing. You invest some money into hiring the proper psychological teams to, to do this kind of testing, and you're already cutting out a lot of people who should have never been on the force in the first place. And then these people know to seek out and reach out to people who can help them. And then you also put into place some sort of a yearly or triennial assessment, an ongoing way to make sure that the people who you've hired, who maybe were fit at the time, may not be fit anymore because of burnout, because of other stressors, because they lost a parent, because they went through a divorce, whatever the case may be. And I think people need to see that to restore their faith in the, the policymakers and the politicians and, and the powers that be that are pledging their support, they need to see that you're actually going to do something about it. This sounds and feels like so much common sense. And as you said earlier on, Dr. Hafiz, what we really need is essentially like some federal type of regulation. So that's yeah. really where it would come from because state by state, it just, it gets to be a little too loose. But I think if it were, if we would push for federally, we could get, I think, a real surge of insistence and support. And, and then we would really end up in, in a better place, wouldn't we? Absolutely. Because look, you know, even in New York City, I mean, I'm in New York, when I say, when I talk about New York City, sometimes I also include some of the surrounding areas. New York City is, you know, that's the best, best that I can speak of. It's a larger city um, in, in terms of, um, you know, population and, and also from a financial standpoint, also has a tremendous number of, of officers on the police force. But you go out to, let's say, Long Island, right? If one town um, is richer, it's wealthier, and they can afford to have 
a greater number of people to respond to, to incidents on the police force. They have a, you know, let's say two or three psychologists on staff that are always available. Um, they do a significant amount of psychological testing. They will end up with one type of police force. You go the next, literally the next count over, and let's say they are not as wealthy or they choose to spend more of their budget in education, right? Every town, every city is allowed to kind of make up these rules as they go along. There is no accountability. There is no oversight. And that's where your problem is. So if I live in one town, like live in, you know, uh, Baskerville, and I go over to Houndsville, I can end up in a very different town in terms of how the policing is done because of how they allocated their budget, how they decided to make these hiring um, decisions. And you can have, you know, one town with maybe minimal police brutality or none and, you know, fair practices. And you can go into the next town where there is racism and police brutality because they pretty much let anyone in. So the only way to account for this is to have some sort of federal oversight and a commitment to doing more police testing psychologically, bringing on the right people to, to design these tests and have some uniformity. So how can we really have that momentum to insist on this happening? I know that the protests are and protesters are asking for some of this kind of reform, but, you know, and I think sometimes that's just um, pushed aside. Do you have a sense of how we can really rally together to be that force of change? You know, I mean, it's the question of the, of the hour. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly thinking, just as one person, how can I get my message across? And I get to be on the radio. I do get to be on TV. I do have a website. How do we get, I think the independent policymakers need to rise above the optics and, you know, and say, okay, we actually need to do something about this, which means we have to introduce a bill, you know, into the Senate. We have to introduce some sort of a stimulus plan that allows us to, instead of defunding police departments, funding them and, and being incredibly tight with how that funding is, is spent by unveiling a training program, um, a, you know, you know as, as teachers, we have to take cultural sensitivity training, right? right. Um, I was a school psychologist and I had to take cultural, uh, cultural sensitivity training. Um, and then when I got licensed, I had to take it again. I had to take uh, child abuse and domestic abuse, you know, type of training to detect kind of problems in the home. Why are police officers not held to the same standards? And teachers are, yeah, right? Doctors right. have to take licensing and board board exams. Why do police officers not have to do any of this? And I think from a federal standpoint, if there is some uniformity in the minimum number, like there has to be coursework in New York City, and this might even be less true in other cities and states. You only have to have um, 60 credits to become a police officer, which means you can have an associate's degree. You don't have to have a bachelor's degree. But I think there's some coursework that is required. You know, you could have you could have gone to school and, you know, just taken classes in art for, you know, all they know and all they care. But as a police department, if you say, well, you know, as part of, uh, of your training, you're going to have to take on cla- ongoing classes for cultural sensitivity. And, and for every city, it varies, right? You might have a city that has um, a, a saturation in a certain type of population. You know, in, in New York City, we have Chinatown. I mean, New York City, we have so many different areas. But, you know, there are cities across the country 
that has um, a, a denser population, a Muslim population, a black population, a Hispanic population. And so, so police officers need to be educated and they need to be trained to be culturally sensitive to those populations because that's who you're serving. You work for those people, right? Exactly. Yes. And if there were indications, a red flag showing that a particular officer or certain ones uh, are exhibiting signs that they don't have that sensitivity, they would be directed to training. If they don't pass the training uh, at a high enough level, I I would say that they would be um, asked to leave or told that they have to leave. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it needs to be part of the job. It needs to be, you know, in psychological fitness is no joke. And if, um, you know, if if, uh, a supervisor suggests you need to go see a therapist or psychologist for some counseling sessions, you better do it because, you know, you have to hold people accountable. And accountability is not something just that just can happen on one strata. It needs to be top down. Right. So... Our work is cut out for us. We, if, if we all pull together, if the majority of us pulls together demanding for this kind of thing, we, we should be seeing change. And in the midst of this, though, I'm thinking about how, it, it, understandably, it's so weighty in the, and in the picture of everything else going around uh, uh, going on around us with the pandemic and with the economy. There's also our own personal self-care so that we have the energy to do the right thing, isn't it? Isn't that the case? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we have to, you know, this is, it's such a multifactorial issue. We need to be able to say that we, you know, emotionally understand this, that we care about everyone, um, you know, who who is enraged at this, rightfully so, that we are actually going, and when I say we, I mean the politicians, people who have the, the, the power to make decisions and to fund or defund departments, and they need to say, look, we get it. And maybe, we, you know, maybe you don't think we get it, but we're going to do the right thing about it. You know, you can't, the thing is you can't assess emotions. You can't assess feelings. You can't get into someone's brain or, you know, their inner thought processes and say, yeah, this guy really does feel terrible about what's happening. But what you can see is something that is tangible and that is operational and that you can, you can say, well, I see it. I see the, the money being put out here. I'm, I'm watching this plan being unveiled about how to train police officers, how to properly do a psychological assessment so you know you're, you're really, you know, feeling this hiring process in a way that is as ironclad as it can be. People need to see that. You are such the voice of reason. And of course, with all your experience, with your education, all of that is really so powerful and so informative to us. Let's mention your website because there's a wealth of information there, too, where we on the opposite side of the country from you can gather that information and learn, Dr. Hafiz. Yes, it's uh, www.comprehendthemind.com. That's comprehendthemind.com. And people who are listening to this show can also find me on Instagram at Dr. Sanam Hafiz or on Facebook. Well, I hope that everyone seeks 
to do that and to become more informed and and to gain more insights. You, as I say, the website too has a, a along with the other media would have a lot of information. And I just really appreciate that you are so committed to this work, so passionate, is so evident, uh, and that you do give us the time to spend the time with us this morning. I'm so grateful. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here for your listeners and you. Thank you. This is Mandy Ringenberg with your Sunday morning shout out. And this week's shout out goes to the Sound Food Uprising, founded by Beecher's Foundation. Yes, as in Beecher's Cheese. Their programs aim to activate adults to demand a better food future. 2.3 million Americans are living with diet and inactivity related diseases, and about 680,000 deaths a year are related to poor diets in the U.S. alone. Now, that's one of many reasons why the Beecher Foundation wants to arm their communities with food industry and marketing know-how. In their many programs, you'll learn how to spend money on good, wholesome food, shopping and kitchen hacks, and even real cooking skills. One of their programs, Sound Food Uprising, aims to invoke just that, healthy eating and smart food shopping. In the two sessions, you'll learn with the guidance of professional instructors how our food choices affect us mentally and physically. During the first session, you'll pull the curtain back on the food industry and learn in-depth more on nutrition labels, marketing tactics, processed foods, and why they aren't good for us, and also, of course, why they're just so hard to resist. Then, in the second session, you'll learn how to shop for sustainable food items, cook, and prepare yourself a delicious and healthy meal. You'll dive into the reasonings behind food marketing and why it's kind of hard to eat good foods because of money reasons, taste interests, or possibly a lack of cooking skills and knowledge. You can also get the kids involved, too, in the Pure Food Kids Workshop. Through their website, they also offer printable recipes, informational videos, meal planning on anything from salads, spices and herbs, and of course, snacks. At your fingertips, they offer articles to learn more about even sports drinks and maybe how your protein bars are not so good for you. Lots of helpful resources to keep you eating healthy. Check out their website today and maybe sign up for a few workshops or two. That's at beechersfoundation.org.